Chapter 5 of Erasmus and the Age of Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Trenton. Erasmus and the Age of Reformation by Johann Husinga. Translated by Frederick Jan Hoffmann. Chapter 5. Erasmus as a Humanist, Significance of the Adagia and Similar Works of Later Years, Erasmus as a Divulture of Classical Culture, Latin, Estrangement from Holland, Erasmus as a Netherlander. Meanwhile, renown came to Erasmus as the fruit of those literary studies which, he, as he said, had ceased to be dear to him. In 1500 that work appeared, which Erasmus had written after his misfortune at Dover, and had dedicated to Montjoy, the Adiagiorum Collectiana. It was a collection of about 800 proverbial sayings drawn from Latin authors of antiquity and elucidated for the use of those who aspired to write an elegant Latin style. In the dedication, Erasmus pointed out the profit an author may derive, both in ornamenting his style and in strengthening his argumentation, from having at his disposal a good supply of sentences hallowed by their antiquity. He proposes to offer such a help to his readers. What he actually gave was much more. He familiarized a much wider circle than the earlier humanists had reached with the spirit of antiquity. Until this time, the humanists had, to some extent, monopolized the treasures of classic culture in order to parade their knowledge of which the multitude remained destitute, and so to become strange prodigies of learning and elegance. With his irresistible need of teaching and his sincere love for humanity and its general culture, Erasmus introduced the classic spirit, insofar as it could be reflected in the soul of a 16th century Christian, among the people. Not he alone, but none more extensively and more effectively. Not among all the people, it is true, for by writing in Latin he limited his direct influence to the educated classes, which in those days were the upper classes. Erasmus made current the classic spirit. Humanism ceased to be the exclusive privilege of a few. According to Beatus Ricanus, he had been reproached by some humanists when, about to publish the Adagia, for divulging the mysteries of their craft. But he desired that the book of antiquity should be open to all, the literary and educational works of Erasmus, the chief of which were begun in his Parisian period, though most of them appeared much later, have, in truth, brought about a transformation of the general modes of expression and of argumentation. It should be repeated, over and over again, that this was not achieved by him single-handed. Countless others at the time were similarly engaged, but we only have to cast an eye on the broad current of editions of the Adagia, of the colloquia, etc., to realize how much greater consequence he was in this respect than all the others. Erasmus is the only name in all the host of humanists which has remained a household word all over the globe. Here we will anticipate the course of Erasmus's life for a moment to enumerate the principal works of this sort. Some years later, the adagia increased from hundreds to thousands, through which not only Latin, but also Greek, wisdom spoke. In 1514 he published in the same manner a collection of similitudes, parabole, 
It was a partial realization of what he had conceived to supplement the adagio. Metaphors, saws, allusions, poetical and scriptural allegories, all to be dealt with in a similar way. Towards the end of his life, he published a similar thesaurus of the witty antidotes and the striking words and deeds of wisdom of antiquity, the Apothegmata. In addition to these collections, we find manuals of a more grammatical nature, also piled up treasury-like. On the stock of expressions, De copia viborum ererum. On letter-writing, De conscribendis epistolis. Not to mention works of less importance. By a number of Latin translations of Greek authors, Erasmus had rendered a point of prospect accessible to those who did not wish to climb the whole mountain, and finally, as inimitable models of the manner in which to apply all that knowledge, there were the colloquia, and that almost countless multitude of letters which have flowed from Erasmus's pen. All this collectively made up antiquity in such quantity and quality as it was obtainable in the 16th century, exhibited in an emporium where it might be had at retail. Each student could get what was to his taste. Everything was to be had there in a great variety of designs. You may read my adagia in such a manner, says Erasmus, of the later augmented edition, that as soon as you have finished one, you may imagine you have finished the whole book. He made himself indices to facilitate its use. In the world of scholasticism, he alone had, up to now, been considered an authority who had mastered the technicalities of its system of thought, and its mode of expression in all its details, and was versed in biblical knowledge, logic, and philosophy. Between scholastic parlance and the spontaneously written popular languages, there yawned a wide gulf. Humanism since Petrarch had substituted for the rigidly syllogistic structure of an argument the loose style of the antique, free, suggestive phrase. In this way, the language of the learned approached the natural manner of expression of daily life and raised the popular languages, even where it continued to use Latin, to its own level. The wealth of subject matter was found with no one in greater abundance than with Erasmus. What knowledge of life, what ethics all supported by the indisputable authority of the ancients, all expressed in that fine, airy form for which he was admired, and such knowledge of the antiquities in addition to all this. Illimitable was the craving for, and illimitable the power to absorb what is extraordinary in real life. This was one of the principal characteristics of the spirit of the Renaissance. These minds never had their desired share of striking incidents, curious details, rarities, and anomalies. There was as yet no symptom of that mental dyspepsia of later periods which can no longer digest reality and relishes it no more. Men reveled in plenty. And yet, were not Erasmus and his fellow workers as leaders of civilization on a wrong track? Was it true reality they were aiming at? Was their proud latinity not a fatal error? There is one of the crucial points of history. A present-day reader who should take up the adagia, or the apothegmata, with a view to enriching his own life, for they were meant for this purpose, and it is what gave them value, would soon ask himself, what matter to us, apart from strictly philological and historical considerations, those endless details concerning obscure personages of antique society, of 
Phrygians, or Thessalians. They are nothing to me. And, he will continue, they really mattered nothing to Erasmus's contemporaries, either. The stupendous history of the 16th century was not enacted in classic phrases or turns. It was not based on classic interests or views of life. There are no Phrygians or Thessalians, no Agislaususes, no Dionysiuses. The humanists created out of all this a mental realm emancipated from the limitations of time. And did their own times pass without being influenced by them? That is the question, and we shall not attempt to answer it. To what extent did humanism influence the course of events? In any case, Erasmus and his coadjutors greatly heightened the international character of civilization which had existed throughout the Middle Ages because of Latin and of the Church. If they thought they were really making a Latin a vehicle for daily international use, they overrated their power. It was, no doubt, an amusing fancy and a witty exercise to plan, in such an international milieu as the Parisian student world, such models of sports and games in Latin as the Coricorium Formulae offered. But can Erasmus have seriously thought that the next generation would play at marbles in Latin? Still, intellectual intercourse undoubtedly became very easy in so wide a circle as had not been within reach in Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. Henceforth, it was no longer the clergy alone, and an occasional literate, but a numerous multitude of sons of burghers and nobles, qualifying for some magisterial office, who passed through a grammar school and found Erasmus in their path. Erasmus could not have obtained his worldwide celebrity if it had not been for Latin. To make his native tongue a universal language was beyond him. It may well puzzle a fellow countryman of Erasmus to guess what a talent like his, with his power of observation, his delicacy of expression, his gusto and wealth, might have meant to Dutch literature. Just imagine the colloquia written in the racy Dutch of the 16th century. What could he have not produced if, instead of gleaning and commenting upon classic adagia, he had, for his themes, availed himself of the proverbs of the vernacular. To us, such a proverb is perhaps even more sapid than the sometimes slightly finical turns praised by Erasmus. This, however, is to reason unhistorically. This was not what the times required and what Erasmus could give. It is quite clear why Erasmus could only write in Latin. Moreover, in the vernacular, everything would have appeared too direct, too personal, too real for his taste. He could not do without that thin veil of vagueness, of remoteness, in which everything is wrapped when expressed in Latin. His fastidious mind would have shrunk from the pithy coarseness of a Rabelais or the rustic violence of Luther's German. Estrangement from his native tongue had begun for Erasmus as early as the days when he learned reading and writing. Estrangement from the land of his birth set in when he left the monastery of Stain. It was furthered not a little by the ease with which he handled Latin. Erasmus, who could express himself as well in Latin as in his mother tongue, and even better, consequently lacked the experience of, after all, feeling thoroughly at home and of being able to express himself fully only among his compatriots. 
After he had seen at Paris the perspective of his own capacities, he became confirmed in the conviction that Holland failed to appreciate him, that it distrusted and slandered him. Perhaps there was indeed some ground for this conviction, but partly it was also a reaction of injured self-love. In Holland, people knew too much about him. They had seen him in his smallnesses and feebleness. There he had been obliged to obey others. He, who, above all things, wanted to be free. Distaste of the narrow-mindedness, the coarseness and intemperance, which he knew to prevail there, were summed up within him in a general condemnatory judgment of the Dutch character. Henceforth he spoke, as a rule, about Holland with a sort of apologetic contempt. "'I see that you are content with Dutch fame,' he writes to his old friend William Hermans, who, like Cornelius Aurelius, had begun to devote his best forces to the history of his native country. "'In Holland the air is good for me,' he writes elsewhere. "'But the extravagant carousels annoy me. Add to this the vulgar, uncultured character of the people, the violent contempt of study, no fruit of learning, the most egregious envy. And, excusing the imperfection of his juvenilia, he says, At that time I wrote not for Italians, but for Hollanders, that is to say, for the dullest ears. And in another place, Eloquence is demanded from a Dutchman, that is, from a more hopeless person, than a Boeotian. And again, If the story is not very witty, Remember it is a Dutch story. No doubt false modesty had its share in such sayings. After 1496 he visited Holland only on hasty journeys. There is no evidence that after 1501 he ever set foot on Dutch soil. He dissuaded his own compatriots abroad from returning to Holland. Still, now and again, a cordial feeling of sympathy for his native country stirred within him just where he would have had an opportunity in explaining Marshall's Wurtis Bataba in the Adagio, preventing his spleen, he availed himself of the chance of writing an eloquent panegyric on what was dearest to him in Holland. A country that I am always bound to honor and revere, as that which gave me birth. Would I might be a credit to it, just as on the other hand I need not be ashamed of it. Their reputed boorishness redounds to their honor. If a Batavian ear means a horror of Marshall's obscene jokes, I could wish that all Christians might have Dutch ears. When we consider their morals, no nation is more inclined to humanity and benevolence, less savage or cruel. Their mind is upright and void of cunning and all humbug. If they are somewhat sensual and excessive at meals, it results partly from their plentiful supply. Nowhere is import so easy and fertility so great what an extent of lush meadows, how many navigable rivers. Nowhere are so many towns crowded together within so small an area, not large towns indeed, but excellently governed. Their cleanliness is praised by everybody. Nowhere are such large numbers of moderately learned persons found, though extraordinary and exquisite erudition is rather rare. They were Erasmus's own most cherished ideals, which he here ascribes to his compatriots gentleness, sincerity, simplicity, purity. He sounds that note of love for Holland on other occasions. When speaking of lazy women, he adds, In France there are large numbers of them, but in Holland we find countless wives who by their industries support their idling and reveling husbands. 
and in the colloquy entitled The Shipwreck, the people who charitably take in the castaways are Hollanders. There is no more humane people than this, though surrounded by violent nations. In addressing English readers, it is perhaps not superfluous to point out once again that Erasmus, when speaking of Holland or using the epithet Batavian, refers to the county of Holland, which at present forms the provinces of North and South Holland of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and stretches from the Vaden Islands to the estuaries of the Meuse. Even the nearest neighbors, such as Zeelanders and Frisians, are not included in this appellation. But it is a different matter when Erasmus speaks of Patria, the fatherland, or of Nostras, a compatriot. In those days, a national consciousness was just budding all over the Netherlands. A man still felt himself a Hollander, a Frisian, a Fleming, a Brabantine, in the first place. But the community of language and customs, and still more the strong political influence which, for nearly a century, had been exercised by the Burgundian dynasty, which had united most of these low countries under its sway, had cemented a feeling of solidarity which did not even halt at the linguistic frontier in Belgium. It was still a rather strong Burgundian patriotism, even after Habsburg had de facto occupied the place of Burgundy, than a strictly Netherlandish feeling of nationality. People liked, by using a heraldic symbol, to designate the Netherlander as the Lions. Erasmus, too, employs the term. In his works, we gradually see the narrower Hollandish patriotism gliding into the Burgundian Netherlandish. In the beginning, Patria with him still means Holland proper, but it soon meant the Netherlands. It is curious to trace how, by degrees, his feelings regarding Holland, made up of disgust and attachment, are transferred to the Low Countries in general. In my youth, he says in 1535, repeating himself, I did not write for Italians, but for Hollanders, the people of Brabant and Flemings. So they now all share the reputation of bluntness. To Levant is applied what formerly was said of Holland. There are too many compotations. Nothing can be done without a drinking bout. Nowhere, he repeatedly complains, is there so little sense of the bonnet literati. Nowhere is study so despised as in the Netherlands. And nowhere are there more cavaliers and slanderers. But also his affection has expanded. When Langolius of Brabant plays the Frenchman, Erasmus is vexed. I devoted nearly three days to Langolius. He was uncommonly pleasing, except only that he is too French, whereas it is well known that he is one of us. When Charles V has obtained the crown of Spain, Erasmus notes, A singular stroke of luck! but I pray it may also prove a blessing to the fatherland, and not only to the prince. When his strength was beginning to fail, he began to think more and more of returning to his native country. King Ferdinand invites me, with large promises, to come to Vienna, he writes from Baza, 1 October, 1528. But nowhere would it please me better than to rest in Brabant. End of chapter 5, recording by Trenton.